Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, the places to dive, and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed episode 357 is recorded live February 1st, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad everybody's here, even if uh, we are a little late. Yeah, just, just, just a tad bit working through all the, all the fun that we have with this technology. And also joining us this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing great now that I finally got on Discord. 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 Yeah. What a cool name. And I'm sure Discord may be a little displeased because I think we are probably about 20 to 30 years outside their target demographic. So <laughs> if, if you notice all the messages when you log into Discord, it's all gamer speak and stuff. So, yeah, they haven't uh, quite gotten around. But we're not the only podcast doing this. I see quite a few podcasts have jumped over to using Discord. I think that the sound quality when it connects is quite good. It does sound good. We'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have quite a few who have uh, made it in. We have Derek, we have Eric, we have Karen, we have Tedward. So uh, quite a good group. Probably one of the best we've we've had since we've moved over to Discord, and that's not including the rest of us. Um, so certainly appreciate having in and listening. And uh, before we get going. You're probably going to get this episode in your stream before the one we recorded previously, and that was last week. When I went to edit it this morning, I discovered I had inadvertently made some sort of configuration error, not even quite sure what it was, but the only audio that was being recorded was mine. And while I do like the sound of my own voice, as my wife frequently tells me, uh, I think it's a little bit better if we could hear everybody else. So I'm going to see what I can do with the recording and, and tune that in. I did have everybody else, but they came through uh, the back half of the microphone, which is because it was picking up uh, some that was coming from speakers, and it's not the best quality. So I'm going to do see what kind of wizardry I can work on. And if you ev never see the episode, then you know that for some reason it just was not recoverable. But uh, if that's so, I think that might be the first time we've lost a full episode. We've lost bits and pieces over the year years, but as we start the ninth season, that was the first time I've had one completely. Normally when we're using TalkShoe, TalkShoe is my backup connection, so we had two streams, but this time was only one. So I'm going to try and figure out a way if we can do a backup. Uh, maybe we'll try and draft uh, or, or ask for some volunteers who have good internet connections. Maybe they can record the Discord stream as well, and if we lose one, then they can pass it on to us. So I uh, apologize for that. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We're going to lead off with a story about a fire destroying a barn, which does not seem to be scuba related, except for the fact that the barn of, uh, uh, let's see, who, whose was it? A fuel tank, a failing fuel tank is believed to have caused a spark that destroyed a barn and outbuilding a pickup truck in Radio Springs Road residence Thursday afternoon, according to a homeowner told 
uh, fire officials. This is down in Georgia. Barry and Susan Casey had gotten home to their, well, they got, they had gotten home around 4 p.m. Thursday, Barry checked his F-350 Ford in the barn with the back end of it inside to do work on it, his wife said. Within about 10 minutes, the barn was up in flames. Uh, County Fire Department told him he had been trying to remove a fuel tank in the back of his truck when it fell and made a spark, lighting the fuel on fire. Barry was checked into Floyd Medical Center. EMS personnel on the scene after hair on his arms was singed. He also experienced chest pains and difficulty breathing. Firefighters got the call at 4.14 p.m. and arrived at the barn, which had already had a collapsed roof, a truck fully engaged, engulfed in flames along with adjacent outbuilding. The blaze started a fast-moving grass fire, which spread in a wooden area behind the barn. Bailey said the initial response was to stop the grass fire and shirt, and then continue to burn to his two-story log cabin house. Firefighters were aiding the effort by a neighbor who used his bobcat skid steer to load her to plow a fire break. It allowed additional firefighters to spray down the burning barn, outbuilding, and truck. Bailey, the Bailey said there were small explosions from the structure in the first five minutes response before firefighters could get the Fires knocked down. They stayed on the scene for over an hour. Susan said all of her husband's scuba diving equipment was inside the outbuilding. The barn was filled with various pieces of equipment. Additionally, the barn had family memorabilia, antiques, furniture inside. All the items, at a minimum, were valued at $100,000. So that was probably, what, $300 for the truck, maybe $500 in tools, and then $99,000 in uh, dive gear? Yeah, definitely if he's a cave diver. <laughs> I was looking for the the rusted outer, burned up frame of the submersible. Yes, oh, that would be nice. Uh, well, not nice that he lost it. Uh, but when they, they said the explosions, I was thinking that they might come back and say that that was some tanks blowing up. But that seems awful quick, five minutes in a fire for for the tanks to be making explosions. Yeah. You'd be surprised how fast the fire can grow in five minutes. Probably the propane tanks he had in the back. In the uh, meth lab? Well, no, but I took <laughs> propane tanks anyway. <laughs> so well, hopefully he had some good insurance and they'll, they'll cover everything. Uh, look, at, look at that picture. It's uh, pretty oh, well. North, northwest Georgia? Might have been a little moonshine. Uh, and then the next one is a innovative dive project removing radioactive Waste from Sizewell site. Show some nice photos of uh, hard hack divers. To work to clear the ponds is likely to take 10 months with the divers tasked with cutting up the metal radioactive skips that once held thousands of, of used nuclear fuel rods after they discharged from the reactors. Over the last, the fuel was transported to Shia Field for reprocessing processing the skips and the range of the redundant items including sludge or left behind in the water. Usual pond cleanouts are done using remotely operated equipment to lift the, the skips, clear the water, exposing them to the air, where they are carefully cut up before decant, decontamination, storage, and eventual disposal. This process is slow with potential radioactive dose risk for workers. A team of American underwater experts wearing full protective suits and shielded from radiation by the water can cut up the skips more safely across awkward areas more easily, making the whole process safer, faster, more productive. Steve Frank, Sizewell A site pond program manager, said the scale of the work to be delivered 
by the divers is huge. Although we only have one pond to decommission, the inventory of the ponds is larger than a Dungeness A, but we have it well stocked to speed up the work whenever it's safe to do so. The site is owned by the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. Jeff Souter, head of the Magnox program for the NDA, said Magnox's implementation of innovative approaches, such as the use of divers to handle radioactive waste in ponds, contributes to real progress in reducing risk and hazards at the Magnox site. Together, we are successfully cleaning up and making safe UK's earliest nuclear sites on behalf of the communities and the environment. In addition to the reduction overall radiation dose for workers compared with traditional methods, divers' techniques, and lowering the environmental impact. The first dive took place recently and focused on surveying the pond floor, transferring sludge into a purpose-built tank, setting up a cutting equipment. Cutting with the first 35 skips were classified as intermediate-level radioactive waste. During more than 250 dives dives at Dungeness A, a number of new ideas emerged, including the use of lightweight plastic platforms for divers to stand down when exploring uncharted areas of the pond floor. A team of 12 nuclear divers is supplied by U.S. contractor Underwater Construction Corporation, UCC, which also carried out a Dungeness A project. So, Mac, was it, would this be considered unusual, or is it just no, unique? For- UCC is the one who does work at Cook Plant, by the way. Okay. And also the one to have the new headquarters or their local headquarters out by the old uh, Burger King, and, uh, or behind them, actually. Oh, this, so, so that's, are they a, a large company, or is that just the worst no, fortune? Very, UCC is a very large company now. Oh, okay. So because and of the nuclear can, plant, they just they have a branch local. Right, right. And they do a lot of work there for the intakes. Uh, that's where most of it is, sand sucking for the four bay areas, and uh-huh. like at Palisades, okay. and even over at Enrico Fermi. Yeah. but We use different terminologies than they do, I think, the English. Yes. Yeah, we seem to have a lot less ease, and then certain consonants move around to different spots. But So when they say pond, they're probably talking like a uh, spent fuel area? Yeah, spent fuel pit. Okay. So it's not like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm picturing like some some uh, countryside with just a little bit of water and uh, a sign saying, hey, you, you no, don't eat fish from here. Yeah, no swimming allowed. Yeah. So yeah, Mac, it, the, the photo was good. Little items about that. You look at the one pictorial where the guy's uh, doing some burning. Yeah. One of the things you got to watch out for there, as a diver, I was safer and less dosed than my tender because of the shielding factor of the water. I'm oh, breathing yeah. good air. All that uh, exhaust goes to the top and to the surface, which then can create airborne. Mm-hmm. So there's got you got to usually be a method to minimize the airborne that you're doing, even by the bubbles that you're creating. Ah. Uh-huh. And I'm looking at that. That's a little different than what Cook Plant has, for example. They had racks. So if you can imagine, you know how an egg carton is where you put the eggs in? Yeah. If you can imagine racks that maybe 12 foot high and you slide a, let's say, a one foot by one foot long cylinder in it, mm-hmm. that would be the storage aspects. Yeah. So once the fuel is out, you want to cut those out. Or you could unbolt them and, and take them out. But again, they'd probably be hotter for you to cut them up on the surface than below. Yeah, because for for most people who don't understand, uh, water is an excellent shielder of radiation. So you can get much closer to high radioactive uh, items in water because of that shielding than you could on the surface. 
You're right. The biggest problem we ever had down there would be something like, uh, well, they said sludge. You had debris that may have fallen in over the years and become activated because of the proximity to to new fuel. Oh. And then if you were to kneel down into something and get a particle of that, you'd call a hot spot. And you could have multiple R that way because now you've got a contact burn. Ooh, okay. So... Now with that, and I'm sure they're they're all dosed up with the good radiation monitoring system. So that's to me was some of the better type of diving. The only thing you had to worry about is the heat. When you said hot spot, were you referring to just that it's a lot of radiation, or would it literally be hot and burn through your dive gear? It wouldn't. It would not burn through it, but you would get a dose. Okay. I mean, you're talking like a head of a pen, mm-hmm. but I could get 30R from the head of the pen. Right, and because you're kneeling on it, you're now touching it. So that water, which right. is acting as a a barrier, which is which is you know kind of like light and other things, there's a, it's a, it squares as your distance goes away. You've yeah. now directly in contact with it, so all that shielding is gone. Yep. Uh, okay. Interesting. Uh, and then the next one we have is uh, if if you're looking for an interesting investment, somebody is saying diving for pearls. Uh, for what? Pearls. Pearls. P e a r l. Yeah, that I'm I'm recovering from, still recovering from my cold, so I I just randomly am dropping uh, vowels and consonants and syllables. Uh, you can invest in jewelry such as a strand of uh, Akimito, gosh, Akio cultured pearls or Chanel costume jewelry, both which go for more than a thousand dollars. The problem is you need to wait for the items to appreciate due to the brand recognition they will hold their value but it's still a long game uh they said if you do invest this way it's important to know what pearl you're getting non-white pearls tend to command higher prices than white pearls they're also scarcer for example a black a black and gray pearl necklace at christie's in 2015 sold for just staggering 5.1 million u.s dollars setting a record while it did have four strands one natural pearl necklace with white pearls Sold in 2009 for 16,875 pounds or about $23,466. Very few non-white pearl pieces of jewelry have been put up for auction in the last half century. When they are, they go for high prices. So the best way to make a profit on pearls is not invest in them. Invest in equipment needed to hunt pearls. Technically, you could dive with just a loincloth like the Japanese did until the 1960s. Now they wear a mask, fins, and a wetsuit. If you aren't a uh, Japanese diver, the last, the very least you'll need, you pick up an appropriate wetsuit for the water conditions you'll be in. Use a mask to see clearly if you aren't wading, using fins to help you swim. Of course, you'll need some skill in swimming. Invest in scuba gear as well as getting certified. Uh, they said then you'll need a permit, a permit for muscling in Tennessee, is $244 for resident and $1,220 for a non-resident. The state provides about 80% of the mussel exports from the U.S., but only about 1 in 10,000 mussels will have a commercially viable pearl, which we'll get you into a moment. Uh, another popular hunting location is the Ohio River, but you can look for pearls anywhere you can find mollusks. This means you'll be wading in a shallow river instead of diving, You'll still want a mask and wetsuit, but scuba tanks and fins are not likely to be needed. And they go on. Uh, guess I didn't really understand what the point of this was. Is, is this kind of well, like you, hunting you're, for you're gold? You've dove the river in St. Joe, right? Or, yeah. And yeah. 
and you've noticed those nice little muscle shells that have the little holes. They're the ones that they used for buttons? Yes. Well, you, you can also get pearls out of a different variety of them. Oh. Now, the, the, the variety we had around here, you probably wouldn't get pearls, would you? I've never seen one in them. Yeah. But then again, if you seeded them like they do over in many places by putting that yes. grain of sand in there, mm-hmm. and then they cover it to get it because it irritates them, and they keep covering it and putting that little whatever they do around it, it makes a nice little pearl. Mm-hmm. But again, it's interesting to note uh, that in Michigan, it's illegal to pick those up and remove them from the water, even the shells, without a permit. Oh. That's current. That's even like today. Well, that, is that just because they were over-harvested? That's a big one there. And the number of mussels have gone down tremendously due to dams and things like this because it's depending on the type of mussel you have, you have to have a lot of different fish to make them propagate. There's like three different major types here. Actually, there's 45 in Michigan. Um, but if you go out to pawpaw, for example, you know, the freshwater clams and mussels? Yeah. All right. When you see those, you know, you can pick them up, take the picture like I normally do, and then you got to put them back the same way you found them. Otherwise, you just broke the law. Ah. And if you did have some of the shells on the surface and you looked at them and cleaned them, you can tell the age of it by the number of striations in the shells. Now, is each striation a year or is it a different unit of time? It, it varies because it's just like the tree rings. It can be big or little based on what kind of year it had. Oh, okay. Mussels here in Michigan can be anywhere from 30 to 50 years old. Wow. Look cool. And then we have a, a gold treasure recovered from an 1857 shipwreck is set to make its debut. More than 50 million worth of gold bars, coins, and dust that has been described as the greatest lost treasure in U.S. history is about to make its public debut in California after sitting on the bottom of the ocean for more than 150 years. 3,100 gold coins, 45 gold bars, and more than 80 pounds of gold dust recovered from the wreckage of the SS Central America steamship are now sitting in a makeshift laboratory just south of Los Angeles. Bob Evans, the chief scientist on the original voyage that discovered the shipwreck and its treasure in 1988, is now painstakingly cleaning each piece of gold by hand, soaking it in a solution, and brushing off rust and grime that accumulated as the treasure sat in 7,000 feet or 2134 meters below the sea level. This is a whole new season of discovery. Evans told the Associated Press this week at the laboratory in Santa Ana. We are now peering beneath the grime and the rust that is on the coins, removing those objects and those substances and getting the look at the treasures that was in 1857. Central America was laden with the booty from the California gold rush, which sank in a hurricane off the coast of South Carolina. In 1857, 425 people drowned and thousands of pounds of California California gold were lost, contributing to an economic panic. Using sable brushes and cleaning solution, Evans has been restoring the gold, some which is completely caked in a black gunk to its original luster for the past two weeks. We'll continue that work through February when the treasure will go on public display at the Long Beach Convention Center just south of Los Angeles. The gold is all for sale. One tiny coin alone can go for $1 million because it's a combination of rarity and the history behind it, said Dwight Manley, managing partner of the California Gold Marketing Group, which is displaying and selling the gold. This is something that hundreds of years people will still be talking about, reading about, and looking back on, collecting things from. There are no other ships that sank that haven't been recovered that rivals this or similar to this, so it's really a once-in-a-lifetime situation. 
Uh, and then they go on uh, quite a bit farther. I I kind of wonder if this is one of those embedded stories of press release, because gold, even as interesting it is, as it is in this quantity, I'm kind of skeptical that many of the pieces are going to be bought as collector's items. You're going to have some initial people, maybe some museums, but in general it's going to go for, you know, whatever the, the value of the gold is by weight. With a, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see the mint mark and the quality when they're graded. Yeah, The issue that really came about because of the coins is if you're a numistic and you wanted them because of their rarity and they were worth X number of dollars and suddenly I find a thousand of the same type that were yep. rare, mm-hmm. that's where the value of the coin from the numistic aspect goes down. Yeah, yeah. I and, print magazines for some of those organizations that track and record that. And you frequently, if you happen to look through them, will see them talk about coins, and they always talk about, you know, pre, you know, non-shipwreck and shipwreck. It's almost like shipwreck is a is a dirty word to them, just because you know where the, it might be five hundred or thousand coins known in existence. When you find one where it's a thousand of a particular brand, you're right; it just changes the rarity of that coin. But by the same token, it makes it open up for people who do collect coins and they couldn't get that one because it costs so much. Mm-hmm. Now it's within their means. Yeah. Not to mention they got the added aspect of from a shipwreck. Yeah, it, it, there's a story behind it. Yep, and 7,000 feet, that's part of it, is the history of it. Yeah. I've think. always wanted a $20 gold piece, a $20 gold piece. Wow. I've always wanted one. So, uh, so how much gold is in a $20 gold piece? Usually it's one ounce, my understanding. It's not 20 ounces, it's 20 ounces. It's just, you know, how it was struck. It's right. like the silver dollars. You know, you have a $5 piece or a mm-hmm. $10. It's just a one ounce, used to be anyway, I believe, troy ounce. And then the value stopped on it, stamped on it. So at one point so in time, think- you, you could, you know, you, you, your $20 was worth an ounce of gold. Yeah. Well, standard, I think well, back in the day was $32 for an ounce. Yeah, the gold would have been worth more than the coin. I'm sorry, the coin should have been worth more than the gold, or else they would have melted the gold. Uh, and that's why they, they got rid of the, like the dollar bill. Mm-hmm. used to be redeemable in silver, if you mm-hmm. had a silver certificate. Yep. Now, when silver ran six bucks uh, an ounce, and you had a you know, dollar bill, I'll take the silver. <laughs> Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> and that's why they don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's when they started printing, what is it called, fiat money? Federal Reserve notes. I can print it because you're never going to say, hey, I want my money back. But if it's backed by gold, mm-hmm. you'd say the economy would be a little bit different. Yeah, well, it was, it was kind of nice to, you know, to, for people to gain trust in the, uh, the U.S. note before uh, the Fed had a, any sort of reputation. I, I, I really, it really irritates me, too, when they say the Fed. It's got nothing to do with the freaking government. Yeah, it's a it's a the Nothing. Federal Reserve, which is actually I think it's a it's private, isn't it? Yes, and if you look at why the national debt keeps increasing, it's because of the interest on the money that they we get from them. Basically, it's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jacksonville explorers make a major shipwreck discovery. Luxury steamship Pulaski sank in eighteen thirty eight en route to Baltimore from Savannah. A team of explorers from Jacksonville made an amazing discovery when they came across the most famous shipwreck in American history. Why do they have to say that? Is this? Is I don't it, know. Is it really the most famous? It it 
wasn't to me. But but maybe in 1838, at the time it was, it sank on a trip from Savannah, Georgia, to Baltimore in 1838. It was located, its location was a mystery until now. Two companies behind the operation, Endurance Expedition Group and Blue Water Ventures International, getting international attention for the find. At least 40 miles off the coast of North Carolina, more than 100 feet underneath the water, dis- explorers discovered the treasure. We have an American Quarter Liberty head facing to the left of the date 1818 underneath it, BWVI marine archaeologist Jim Sinclair said. Discovers under, dis- divers under, uncovered what was believed to be the remains of the long-lost Pulaski, a luxury steamship that exploded in 1838, killing 128 people, including some of the wealthiest families in America. Now 118, 118, 180 years later, Jacksonville-based International is bringing it to the surface. We hope that's what we're trying to do. There's just so much to learn about this whole time period. It's very exciting, said Mark, partner of BWVI. It's definitely an adrenaline rush. You're down there. You know the treasure in the area. You're not sure if you're going to find anything, but when you do, it's a very exciting situation. Endurance Exploration Group used the research and sonar shipwreck so far between 100,000 and 200,000 worth of early American coins have been found. But the treasure hunters believe there's twenty to twenty-five million worth still under the stand. There's a lot down there. We haven't even scratched the surface. This isn't the first time the team have discovered treasure over the years. They have found several Spanish shipwrecks with tens of millions of dollars of gold, silver, and other artifacts. Monday they opened their vault to show uh, local TV stations discoveries from old Spanish ships off the coast of Florida and the Caribbean. With a fa- with eleven million dollars worth of pearls, gold, silver, and iron already discovered, as they are continuing to search for more hidden treasure, they know the future is bright. There's hundreds of wrecks across the coast of the United States, even hundreds more down by the Caribbean, maybe even thousands. It's been said there's potentially more gold to bomb of the oceans than in circulation today. Treasure from the latest find is being restored and preserved right now, and it's in the case. It's finders keepers. The divers will continue to work with the Pulaski shipwreck for another few seasons. The company is also working on another top-secret project closer to home, some off the coast of Jacksonville. I sent a little article there from the Daily Mail, UK. Mm-hmm. has uh, several videos on what they're doing out there. Well, very interesting. The guys on the bottom with metal detectors picking up the coins. Pretty, pretty sweet. Yeah. Well, these guys seem to have uh, a good line and a pretty good track record of finding this stuff. I think it takes money to make money. It certainly does. Oh, great for them. And maybe, and then there'll be some more coins we were talking about. Yeah, I'm sure the numistic people hate that, though, because now they're something you had that was worth. Oh, yeah. going to be as much. Well, this next article is out of Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, according to local newspaper, two wooden shipwrecks have been found in the Baltic Sea near Sweden. One of the vessels is thought to be a single-masted cog dating to the 14th and 15th century. The other ship thought to date to the 16th century was carrying 20 barrels of Osmond iron, a type of wrought iron and tar, when it sank. Maritime archaeologist Jim Henson said he had never seen such well-preserved shipwrecks. They will be featured in the new Maritime Museum in Stockholm, and they have a link in the article uh, where you can go and read more. And they actually, the nice part when you go to that link is the pictures Uh-oh. of the bracelet and the money again, money, oh. gold, and other artifacts. Wow, those are that is some very detailed jewelry there. 
Well, it's nice is when you go down further in the pictorial there, you start seeing where they're doing this on land. Wow. I wouldn't mind metal detecting there, the silver smelting operation back in the day. Yeah. Well, I've, I watched, uh, and I haven't followed it the last few years, but there was a, a uh, fictional show called Vikings. And the the first season, which I did watch, they had, uh, you know, they were raiding countries, and they had so much gold that they were burying it, and then the they were they were being killed off. You know, they would they'd do these fights over uh, who owned stuff, and they killed the only guy who knowed who knew where the gold was. So we'll you, take a look at that next little link I just sent you. Just uh, the picture you see when you open it up. Oh, goodness. Well, it's starting to load now. I'm sure the other ones have seen it, maybe clicked into it. But yeah. uh, I'd love to be out there with my metal detector and watch oh. all that. Oh, wow. Yeah. I like the words they use to describe that. Enormous horde. Yeah. Yes, I'd love to find an enormous horde. Enormous horde and gold? I, I don't know how. Oh, that could be bad. I would take silver. I mean, that's what this is. Can you imagine how much fun that Almost would be? looks like brass. Interesting, though. Wow. Very cool. So if it, when you, uh, you get a chance to click on the show notes, it's certainly worth taking a peek at these. Uh, oh, no, i got to get back to my articles. I think that may have been the the end of the, the normal articles, and then we had one potentially cool scuba gear. And I think we've talked about this before. It's a press release, which means it's just a sales job, but still interesting to talk about Brownie Marine Group, the parent company uh, to legendary diving brands such as Brownie's Third Lung have introduced a new brand of dive systems called Blue 3. In addition to represent the company's plan to roll out a series of three models, the method differentiate the name from the color, the three in the place of the E is a direct homage to Brownie's third lung brand, the flagship product of the parent company. Blue 3 is uh, truly, no, it's not. I guess I guess they want you just to say blue. It's truly the next generation Brownie Marine Group. They'll be heralded by Blake Carmel, Carmichael, son of Robert Carmichael, founder and CEO of BMG. The legend continues not through inheritance, but earnest effort, talent, and skill. Blake applies degree in electrical engineering to to develop the introduce, introductory model Nomad by Blue. So what makes this, any idea, is this just a, I'm going to say just a, uh, so this is a, a hooker rig? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a battery-operated hooker rig. So the compressor floats in the surface, uh, 40-foot hose, attaches to a backpack mount that doubles as, an, as a dive harness, charged with single Cable can even be charged by an operational solar panel in about three hours. So their desire is to fill the void between snorkeling and scuba diving. They say how much one of these costs? I just sent you a picture of it with it on the shoreline, the image, and the power to power back up your battery while you're waiting on the surface. Mm -hmm. Oh, so they're doing a Kickstarter then. Oh, that isn't that is a little bit of an interesting setup. If you go down and hit on the bottom where it gives you a little item that says play, that's some other information. Okay. So let's see, I'm gonna follow it to 
It says live on Kickstarter, but of course they don't have any links to the Kickstarter unless you're seeing it. Want me to send you the link? Yeah, if you've got it, I'm on about the five click. Oh, here it is. Finally, you got to love that. You make a say you made a decision to go and buy it. It takes you a while to get there. I just want to see how their Kickstarter campaign is doing since it's just launched. So it's first available was today, the day of the recording. Their goal is $210,000. So far, they got 5825 with 17 backers and 43 days to go. So, uh, I mean, they, they need to step it up a little bit if they're going to make it. Let's see what's the least thing you can get other than... Uh, some some of the amounts they don't get you anything other than a little bit of swag and they get you on a waiting list to be able to buy it. Let's see. Uh, first round backers get a thousand dollars off. So if you pledge nine hundred ninety nine dollars or more, you'll receive your very own Nomad at an incredible rate. Become a ple- a key player, in making Nomad a reality. At a hundred dollars or more, of the pledge you're set for Massfin Snorkel. We'll ask you for a size of the shipment. Okay, so I'm guessing that they're that they're then targeting this for two thousand dollars, and then like all these kickstarters, if you really want it, you want to get in as early as possible because as the as the rounds go up, they start getting more expensive. So it does look like the targeted price for this is going to be about two thousand dollars. I did think the interesting part about that was on um, one of those packages they actually give you a spirit not give you you paid for it spirit yeah. for it so if you're down there and you run out you've got something to get you back to the surface what it fails to identify is do you need to be scuba qualified to use this uh i'm betting you do not which i think is probably in it, it, you should have some sort of scuba qualifications it'd be interesting to see the liability statement for it mm-hmm well, looking through their timeline, because they, they've got a prototype unit now, but they're using the Kickstarter, which I'm, I'm kind of puzzled by operating businesses that are using Kickstarter to do new new product lines. It's, I mean, I guess if you can get people to pay for it, but I'm not sure if it's really necessary. The prototype they have, uh, the unit's a 30-pound unit, and they're saying the production goal is for a 19-pound unit, so they're trying to knock about a third of the weight off. I, I, yeah, it looks like a pretty decent practical design. I like how they're showing it, or they're showing somebody using it as a backpack because it's all self-contained, so you could hike in somewhere. Uh, wonder what the weight is, because that'd be the other thing. If this has to be, if this is lighter than scuba tanks, then if you're trying to get into a remote location and you don't need to go deep, this could also be handy. Let's say you want to do some, you know, mountain lakes or something. Well, if you look at the Brownie Long. They're what they call their F-285X. That's the one that's got the inner tube with the plastic housing mm-hmm. with the pump assembly and stuff on top with the die flag. That runs twenty seven ninety three. Ah. And in the title, it says scuba diving hookah system. So I would imagine the, the term itself would indicate scuba diving means you need to be qualified I wonder if you have to have a C card if you buy one. Hmm. Let's see. Let's look at the frequently asked questions. <laughs> there, there aren't any yet. Uh, let's see. Somebody's asked, uh, yes, a NUMA, the Nomad battery will be modular and that will disconnect into multiple segments. Uh, 
So the, the reason they're talking about doing that is if you wanted to bring this on an airplane, uh, they have to get the battery pack. Okay, I see what they're doing. They're dividing the battery pack in the 100-watt-hour segments so that they don't violate the FAA guidelines for air travel. Ah, interesting workaround. I sent another link with some Photoshop pictures and things like that for that uh, on inner tube type, if anybody is interested. Uh-huh. I mean, it's interesting. It's I don't I don't think it's necessarily for me. I think there's are some use cases. Now, the one that you got in the picture there, that's uh like a it's a gas powered motor. So that one's yeah, using that one is. This, so that's a gas traditional hooker right. rig as opposed to. Now you've a, seen the one Jake has, right? His is battery operated. I haven't actually seen it up close, but I was aware that he had one. So yeah, yeah. That, that's a it's a little pricey. So I think yeah, they're hitting a good price point. Okay, well, you know, I hope uh, I wish them well, and maybe if that hooks people into scuba diving, then uh, all the better. So that does it for scuba diving in the news. Um, has, has anybody been getting any time in the water since we last spoke? My. Well, let's see. We had the uh, New Year's Eve dive, and then I had a recovery dive after that. I saw that you, uh, what was the story behind that one? Um, apparently they had a side-by-side four-wheeler out on the ice and it became disabled and would not roll. So it must have locked up or something in, in gear. And apparently they decided to go out with their F-350 pickup truck and drag it back to the shore. But the ice was not strong enough to support the F-350 pickup truck. Ah. So it sounds like it front wheels broke through the ice, and then it sat there for a little bit until the heat of the engine just continued to soften the ice, and it nosed on in, broke the ice away, and ended up at about 14 feet of water. That's ah, a little bit taller than the vehicle. So I assisted with the recovery of that. How thick was the ice uh, that it fell through? Uh, well, when we got out there, we had about five inches. But I'm going to say an inch of that or more uh, formed up in about 24 hours because the area that the truck went through was about two inches thick. So wow. it was it was an interesting dive. So, so I had to the other truck. What was that, Don? What happened to the truck? That one went out to get. Um, it got recovered. Uh, the four, uh, the four by four, four by four. Uh, the the tow company put, I think they said eight hundred feet of rope uh, on the ice and used the rope to tow the four by four in, slid it across the ice eight hundred feet to shore, and then we had probably. 75 feet, maybe 100 feet of area to bring the truck back in. So we had to cut the ice and make a trench to roll the truck up the shoreline because the ice wasn't strong enough to bring the truck up onto the ice. So we just rolled it up the shoreline and cut a trench out of the way to move the ice out of the way to roll it up. Now, I take it that 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 had to be removed from the water just because of the Environmental hazard? Yeah. Uh, DNR gave them 48 hours to get it out before the fines started. 
and we got it out in less than 24. It took less than an hour from the time I hit the water till the time we had it on shore. Wow, that is excellent. Yeah, the, the, the crew from True's Towing really know what they're doing. Wow, yeah, especially when you said you had to cut a trench. I was thinking, well, that's, that had to take you a while, but. Well, uh, we just, first thing we had to do was make a hole to get down to the truck, and then they had to make a hole. Um, we used separate holes for me to make entry and exit and for the hook and chain to drop down through to tie the truck up with. Mm-hmm. And then they cut a narrow trench for the cable to go through until the truck started to bottom out on the, the or hit the ice, mm-hmm. you know, as it came up the shore, got under the ice. And then we just used chainsaws and cut a cut two straight lines about the width of the truck, a little wider than the truck, towards the shore, and then went back and just started cutting into blocks and sinking the blocks, pushing them out of the way. And we just rolled the truck right on up. Wow. Very nice. It's not the first I've done. <laughs> Probably won't be the last. <laughs> not as long as there's beer. I think uh, yeah. there will be... A need to recover trucks. Yep. So, at least this one didn't have a boat and a trailer attached to it. <laughs> so, what is so the? It was an interesting. What, what interesting is the, fun time. What is the fine if somebody didn't make it out in time? I don't know. Um, I really don't know what DNR charges them, but it may be a situation where if they don't get it out, DNR just you know. I don't know what they would do, whether they would contract it directly uh, or how they'd handle it. But I heard it was $1,500 a day, but I'm not sure if that's correct. That wouldn't surprise me. I know there is a heavy fine for snowmobiles that get in the water and don't get pulled out. The problem with just leaving your snowmobile is it's got a tag on it. So they'll eventually figure out who had it, who lost it. And how much to charge you if I find it during the summer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the last day we had ice was uh, March first, so it's uh, that's the last point where the, the clock could start. That's generally why people like to find divers in a hell of a hurry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a nice article I read, and I actually cut it out because I was very interested. In Wisconsin, there's a guy who does this; he's been doing it 50 years. And I've got some video I, I looked at several years ago of his techniques and his uh, equipment that he has modified to bring out trucks, cars. And, and when he up there, you know how he had a fishing shanty? Well, the mm-hmm. fishing shanties they are now using are tandem wheels on the back, and you're towing out with a 450 truck. <clears throat> so when the, when, it, when it sinks, it's a house freaking house trailer. <laughs> And from house trailers to the trucks to whatever is what they have been bringing up. And they are not cheap. Some of these guys use a really nice, um, almost like a seesaw. Yep, that's uh, him. That's the pendulum. Tipping tipping board where they just kind of pull it straight up and it tips over. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they've got a track to drive it off of. So they're basically lifting it right out the hole that it fell down versus dragging it across the bottom. Yeah. Which, depending on how far away from shore it is, that may be the only way you can get it is to have to lift it. I was 
I wasn't sure on this one if we were going to have to do some lift bag work with it to try to get it above the ice or what they were going to do. But uh, this one was close enough to shore that we could just basically drive it back up the ramp. Well, when these guys work, they have several devices like that, depending on mm-hmm. what it is and, and how much it weighs. And uh, their first hour was in the neighborhood of $12,000. It's a team of five guys who know what they're doing. And then after that, it drops down a little bit for the next hour and the next hour and the next hour. Yeah. So you're paying it. They, they've been doing this a lot. Yeah, it's one of the things with uh, snowmobiles quite often. They're far too, so far away from shore that you've got to either float them underneath, which is a, can be very dangerous when you're trying to take it that far back, or you bring it up through the hole that it fell through or bring it up at a hole and get it on top of the ice as quickly as possible. So. Yeah, still a game of okay. Do we wait a couple days for the ice to thicken up so we can support it, or what do we do? Yeah, I I think it counts if you get it up into a big hole and you put the old swimming pool, plastic swimming pool, under it and inflate it around it. You're capturing the elements, and I think that Mm -hmm. buys you something from the DNR. Yeah, at least you've got it contained. Yep, and that's a big one. And and they're also, you know, when they go out there, they've got oil booms and this kind of stuff to start chopping up the material. And that's why they're, it may cost a little bit, but they're sure doing a good job about it. Yeah, that's all part of it is, you know, once the ice is done and, and cleaning up around it and getting all the, any oil sheen off the top of the water. That's all. And where you just do the match the and get, get rid of the surface stuff. Yeah, just caramelize it a little bit. Uh, I don't want to hear anybody emailing us saying that we we recommended that technique. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Don't do and that. If somebody did tell you, it wasn't me. Well, that, uh, Jim, that sounds like a pretty interesting dive. Did you have any other opportunities? Uh, that's the only one that I've, I've been called on since first of the year. So got my January dive in. Now it's February, so I'll have to figure out another one for February. Yeah. Well, now you got wet again, though. Yeah. Same job. Didn't you have a Discover Scuba going on? Yeah, we did. You know, that that was in the pool. I won't. You're not booking it. I guess if we got desperate, we could count it. But, yeah, (laughs) we did a Discover Scuba class and had 20 people go through it, and they greatly enjoyed that. And while we were there, we opened up the pool to the experienced divers and let them wash their gear and play with some toys, get wet in a nice, warm, clean pool. So we may do that again in eh, maybe March, do one more before we start hitting the lakes for spring diving. I I would like to say when he says nice, warm, that's relative. Warmer than outside. Yes. It would have been smart to have at least a three-mil suit on in there if you're going to be there for three hours. (laughs) But they did have warm showers. Yeah, yes. So I, so I take it, Mac, by your comments, it did get a little chilly after a while. If you're not wearing a freaking suit, it was. <laughs> so then my my wetsuit probably would have been pretty appropriate then. The way you dive, you would have your, been Your great. ventilated wetsuit? Yes. Yeah, the, well, that way the yeah. water can drain out when I get out. Well, Rick came out there, and he used his dry suit he hadn't used for a couple of years, and he said he's glad he did it there. Because all the seams leaked. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, wow. So how, how long has it been since Rick had been in the water then? We haven't been up north with with uh, 
Jim and uh, Bob for this is the third year in a row. I've missed it. Yeah. Wow. And we sure miss it when you're not there, Mac. I miss it when I'm not there. It's just not Never. the same. So, I was going to my about, the other day and I can't at, possibly going over to Alpina next year instead of Sheboygan. That'd be interesting as well. Alpina would be nice. It's been a long time since we've been to Alpina. They've actually found some new shipwrecks since we've been to Alpina. So I, I saw a few press releases where they had talked about that. Did you take a look at the itinerary for the uh, Shipwreck Festival in Ann Arbor? I just got it today and didn't pay attention to it because I'm not going to be available for that one. I've got to go over to um, Chicago for that day. I will probably be there, but it's a little bit skimpy compared to last year. Are they still trying to book guests, or they just didn't get as many this year? I'm not sure. Last year, they had three different items at one time. Right. You know, three different uh, venues. And this year, I only saw a reference to different venues. Oh. Well, that since we brought that up, we've got uh, we're getting ready to start entering the dive show season. So, what's the first show up for twenty eighteen? Water the seventeenth, seventeenth of February. Yes. Wow. So we've got the preserve meeting one weekend, and then the next weekend it kicks off with our world underwater. Right, and and ghost ships got canceled this year. Yeah, they, and that was attendance. I think. Oh, because they had a big program they put on, and that takes a lot of money and a lot of people to come through. I know the um, seminars were very well attended because I went to all of those. And I enjoyed the, the opportunity, if you want to try rebreathers, at a rebreather mm-hmm. class or intro that was very reasonably priced. So plenty of items. And uh, I, I, it's unfortunate they're not having it. I would have loved to have gone to that one also. So is there any talk, is this just one year off or is this uh, maybe never again? I don't have any feedback on that. Um, I went to their website, and there's nothing there to indicate mm. one way or the other. Yeah. And then we've got if, the... If Ghost Ships would be interested in moving the venue, it'd be nice to bring something to southwest Michigan. Yeah? yeah. How, how large was that show? Is that something that could be housed in one of the facilities around here? Um, well, we certainly could use the... I don't know that it would take the whole thing, but there's lots of meeting room and presentation opportunities out at the Mendel Center. Yeah, 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 that'd be true. You've got the, you know, the Upton Hall, and then you've got the the large theater. If you had anything like that, that that could be kind of yeah. nice. You could set up yeah. booths in the hallway or some of the other rooms. That that yeah, catering yeah, right you, there. Lots yeah, of opportunity. Yeah. I was going to say, if you had a big size auditorium and you had the bleachers where they fold, folded up. You could put most of the tables and stuff there for the um, display aspects. They were good because it was uh, techie diving, mm-hmm. and that's where you wanted to look at your rebreathers. You look at your steel tanks and all the unique items that the normal diver doesn't do. That yeah. was the place to go. No, yeah, I mean a, a school with an auditorium would work well. Yes, it would. You know, and then because you, if you had the, a school with an auditorium, you'd do the presentations there. And in the big gym, you'd go ahead and put out the displays. Yeah. Well, I mean, you say yeah. that, then maybe uh, you've actually, the, the where you did your Discover Scuba, they might not be a bad venue. You've got the uh, field house. Yeah. So you'd, you'd be right there with a pool for, you know, just trying That's out true. the rebreathers, and then you could do everything in the field house and the gym mm-hmm. would be enough. Interesting. Yeah. We'll have to see what happens, because if they don't do it next year, maybe it's time to. Yeah, bring, bring it in. Southwest. Yep. yep. 
Okay, and you mentioned that there be there could be some diving coming up, or is it look like we're building some ice, or is it pretty sketchy for this year? Well, we've got a class scheduled for the tenth, eleventh, um, the weekend of the tenth and eleventh of February to try to get some ice diving in. So, if uh, if we've got people interested in ice diving class, we're going to hold it that weekend, and if they want to do some of the winter specialties like gear maintenance or nitrox or um, oxygen provider, first aid, CPR, you know, those classes, uh, we can put those on Thursday evening or Friday evening, and then hopefully we'll have ice for Saturday and Sunday and get some ice dives in. Well, excellent. And then March, we're looking at trying to get the pool again in March for another Discover Scuba and... Uh, spring gear checkout dive before we start hitting the big lake or the inland lakes. It's usually March and April's when we start jumping in after the ice clears while the water's still clear. And we've still got Wolf's Open House coming up on the 17th of March. Uh, 17th of March, yes. Yep. So. And the 18th. Mm-hmm. A lot going on. And I'm going to have a few changes inside the dive shop that hopefully people will notice when they come in. So, along with some new gear, so we're we're trying to keep it fresh. Look forward to seeing it, Mac. Do you have any safety tips for the week? Not today. I, I had some, and I cannot find the darn thing. You know how it is? <laughs> put it on the computer, and I put it. So I failed open on that one today. Darren, I will mention now is a great time to get your regulators in for preseason service. Mm -hmm. If you haven't had them checked in a year or two, definitely get them in. If not for a full overhaul, at least for an inspection. Yeah, I I probably uh, do need to do that. I've got that. I got a tank that I need to get a viz on, and then I got a tank to pick up that I've 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 had the the tank to drop off when I picked the other one up in my truck for about the last eight to ten weeks and get tired well, of moving it around. Bring it by. Your your full tank is there ready to go, but it's a good reminder to take a look, look at your tanks and find out if you've got anything that's going to need um, hydro. Yes. You know, five years uh, from the date stamped on it, it's due for another hydro, and visual is required every year by DOT, so... If you're using it for scuba, it does need to be visualed. I know and that if I just it's an alloy tank. My... It's if it's one of the alloy tanks, it's got to be eddy current tested every year now. I know I got my bailout back from you, and uh, my other tank that you did hydro last month, I had had had, uh, had to have some valve work done, and it definitely needed it. And I might add, if anybody's got Poseidons, uh, Wolf's is now doing repairs and uh, tune-ups on Poseidons. Yeah, we got nice. that got that class under our belt, and so along with the full Aqualung line, we're we're doing Poseidons and can do Ziegel and can do Tusa, Tabata. Nice. So we've stocked in some parts for Poseidon, and I'm going to be rebuilding some Agas and some Guardians. We've got some nice some used uh, communications gear that came in that we've gone through and fixed up. So. If you're not afraid of used gear, we definitely have it. 
Yeah, I'm going to have to stop in there and take a look. Uh, seems like I'm always forgetting something. Well, if you want to follow along the show, we always recommend that you hit up our website, www.scubobsess.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at ScoobObsessed or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ScoobObsessed. And we're always looking for your assistance as we start this ninth season. Uh, any amount helps. So if you think we're worth a cup of coffee, why don't you head on over to our website, click on the Patreon link, and $3 or more will get you early access to the show notes. And we certainly thank our Patreon supporters, and we can use as much support as you can offer. Uh, Mac, you have anything you want to plug before we head to the end of the show? I think we're pretty much dead. Uh, you know, the major show's coming up. You have to go to the club website, uh, club site on Facebook. If you're trying to do some buddy driving, buddy, you know, trying to get to one of the dive shows, you know, I've noticed already people are trying to get together who's going to car ferry and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. take a look and see what's going on for the diving aspect. Okay. I mean, you got any last words, Jim? No, just get out there and support your shops. There's not a lot of diving going on in the wintertime, so cash flow can get a little tight. So help them out. You might find you get a better price on regulator repairs and service in the winter than you do in the busy summertime. Save yourself a buck and keep that shop afloat. And to get the stuff back quicker, too, because you're not overburdened. Mm-hmm. And then if Kevin was here, he'd be reminding you to... uh Go into your libraries, and I can't remember what it is. It's, is it do something to the librarians? Oh, thank them. Is, is yes, a, thank them. Thank, thank the libraries, librarians, because they, they, they work there, and they can give you some help, and they're quite knowledgeable. So if you're hunting for those shipwrecks or those historic documents, make sure you check out your local librarians. No, no, it was check out the library. Oh, the librarians. library. God, get that. I keep getting that one wrong. Yeah. So are we ready? Ever ready. Oh, yeah, I've missed this so much. Okay. Well, this one, it's... It's just not the same when you're listening to the <laughs> podcast as when it's live. <laughs> the, 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 the groans are more genuine. Uh, th- th- this one's in, not quite. I mean, we th- we can say this one's an honor, Mac, because many of our scuba divers also parachute, so they'll be able to understand this one. A man wants to do a new parachute record, the longest free fall without pulling on the ripcord. So he jumps in a plane at a high altitude. His height gauge shows 30,000 feet. Uh, he keeps falling. When he checks his gauge, it now shows 15,000 feet to the ground. A few seconds later, it shows 12,000 feet. He continues falling. Now it's only 3,000 feet left. He grasps a wrist cord firmly in his hand. At 1,500 feet, he's singing in a shaky voice. Only 300 feet left. He waits at the last moment. Then it's only 150, 120, 90, 30, 30 feet to the ground. Then the man shrugs. Oh, well, whatever. I can handle 30 feet without a parachute. Yep. So so is it better live? That one would not be good anyway. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me, we used to have a guy at the drop zone. We called him Blind Joe. Okay. And, okay. And one of the specialties is he packed parachutes for us. No, that, this is not a joke either. This is oh, real. gosh. I'm, I'm getting worried. And he could see, you know, enough to do that very well, and he did a real good job. Uh, but people always used to say, well, Joe, when you're jumping, 
you know, how do you know when the, you know, when to flare? And he said, well, that's easy, silly. I just wait till the leash goes slack. <laughs> Seeing eye dog. Mm-hmm. Darren, you know the last thing that goes through that guy's mind that uh, you had to joke about? No, what's that? His kneecaps. <laughs> As a side note, you know, there is a guy who just doing that. Deliberately got out at high altitude and did not pull, and he had a net on the ground. Yep. And I watched that, and it's like, that guy's got some brass ones and very, very big ones. I think I saw that one. Wasn't it the one where he kind of didn't hit the net quite right? Well, he, I mean, hitting the net is what you want. <laughs> well, yeah. He, he hit the net. He hit it well enough that he walked away from it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was well, interesting watching you. that when you see the four of them jump out of the airplane. And one by one, they start peeling away their parachute, you know, peel away when their parachute pops. And this last guy's got no parachute on his back. And you realize he's not going to grab a hold of somebody, just do a free fall, grab somebody and land on their chute. He's going all the way to the ground with this one. And then he, you know, you see the net below him and he, he lands in the net. Wow. Yeah, but I, there's no way in hell. When I ever do that. Yeah. I wonder if he'd ever do it again. Yeah, that would be a question. I mean, he, he has experience. He practiced one heck of a lot, which you should do. Uh, it's like the guy with the wingsuit. Um, he landed without a parachute, the first guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, what he did is he landed in cardboard boxes. <laughs> but still, you know, how oh. do you know? Oh, my goodness. Well, and there's always somebody when you want to be the first. Yeah, that's... Certain things I, I, I'll let other people take. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And don't jump out of any perfectly good airplanes. With no parachute. <laughs> <laughs>